0: Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Thank You Now What, a podcast about life after service. I'm your host, Matt DeVivo. This episode was produced by Ben Murray. This episode, we talked to Andrea Goldstein. Andrea is a senior policy advisor at the U.S. House of Representatives, where she works primarily on matters pertaining to women in the armed forces and female veterans. She's a Navy intelligence officer, still serving in the reserve since leaving active duty several years ago. In addition to her work in intelligence, she recently served as a NATO policy advisor, focusing on gender issues. For a number of years, Andrea was a senior columnist for Task and Purpose, a digital publisher focused on military and veterans issues where she started writing on active duty under a pseudonym.
1: There was actually a colleague who worked with me. He was like, you need to see this article by Anna Granville. It sounds like what she wrote would really resonate with you. And I just had to turn to him and be like, it's me.
0: We'll get to all this, as well as a few more topics on this episode. We hope you enjoy our conversation and thanks as always for listening.
1: All right, you're plugged into the computer. We're finally ready to go. Oh yeah? Yeah, we're good.
0: All right, cool. Thanks for being with us. Have you got to play any hockey uh, recently? Yeah,
1: I'm on a local uh, disabled veterans team here. Oh, really? Yeah. What's
0: the, what's like the range of disability?
1: Oh, you just have to have at least 10%. Oh,
0: okay. So it's like a, it's like a vets club team.
1: Yeah, it's a vets club team. So in DC, there's a big mill vets team called the Capitol Beltway Warriors. And then I guess a year after I moved here, which was about when I was like finally getting my bearings, a bunch of folks decided to spin off and create a disabled vet team, and apparently this is a whole thing. Like disabled vets is a is an entire separate division. So I'm on that team. It's great, and we've been we've been playing. I mean, the the rinks here are open. It's b- totally bizarre in that you go into an empty rink. You know, you wear your mask before you go in, and you're limited on the number of skaters. They check your temperature before you go in. You have to log in, but like it's just our team. There's no one else there. But yeah, I've been skating.
0: Yeah, we uh, we started uh, right here. You have to call it uh, practice. So you can scrimmage against your own team or someone else's team as long as you're all practicing together. Anyway, we're not into league games yet, yeah. but uh, I can't wait to get back.
2: You were just in Vegas uh, doing that too. Played yeah, yeah. so uh, <laughs> I,
0: played a, I played a super rusty game in Vegas, uh, but we did it for charity. Uh, it was pretty great. Nice. And then got to spend the weekend there and came back. And then we started getting to practice here. But, uh, Ben, you may not know, Andrea and I played uh, like a half a season together in New York when we were we were working at the same firm. And uh, I think you were in the middle of grad school, right?
1: Yeah. So I, I came down from Boston for games.
0: <laughs> well, you came down from Boston to work, though, right? Yeah, I did. Or did you just have like an Amtrak frequent rider?
1: I mean, I... By the winter, I was coming down just for the games.
2: So what, it too far to come up from D.C.?
1: I've got my own team here now.
2: (laughs) Uh,
0: You captained the hockey team in college, right, at Chicago?
1: Yeah, that's true. So we were a club team, University of Chicago. It was a mix of everywhere from, there were women on the team who were hopefuls. They were competitive to be on the, the national team to one of our team captains when I first joined the team had joined the team on a dare. One of her really good friends said, if I shave my head, you have to play hockey. And so she learned to skate and play hockey. We had a lot of former competitive figure skaters who do very well because it's a lot harder to teach someone to skate than to teach them stick handling. So that that was our our team. And then you had someone like me who were somewhere in the middle where I had been playing on and off since, like, the third grade, and I have always been fine. <laughs> I've yeah. never been the worst player. I've never been the best player. I've always been fine for whatever level that I'm playing at, and that held up for my college team.
0: <laughs> I, th- I think I would consider myself in the same category. Kind of grew up playing, <laughs> still enjoy playing. I play with a guy who's 70, and I just hope to be that guy.
1: Yeah, this is the best part of playing on a disabled vet hockey team is that all of a sudden, like, I'm in better shape
0: yeah. He's
1: like, oh, <laughs> only your back is gone? Well, uh-huh. <laughs> like I have a teammate with one lung. We have teammates who have actually come out and played on sleds. It's it's a very e- – everyone's a mess, and it's wonderful. It, <laughs> it sounds it, like it's, a blast. It's, yeah, it's one of the better teams i played on. It's awesome.
0: So let's kind of backtrack to before school. Do you have military history in your
1: family? That's an – Interesting question. I wouldn't, I don't come from what, what I would consider a military family. My grandfathers both served in World War II. My maternal grandfather was in the army. He died before I was born. He died when my mom was pregnant with me. And there's actually an interesting story there. The short of it is, my mom knew one story and she sent me something. And, and I realized that just based off of reading like the insignia, that the story that he told was not all of it. So my maternal grandfather was in the the Army Air Corps, my paternal grandfather was in the Navy. And then all my great uncles were in the services. I have a great uncle who was in the the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, but that was all I knew. I knew they'd served in World War II. It it really was not particularly influential. Everything that I learned about their service was after I had already joined. And Mm. in fact, it was my service or frankly, talking to my boyfriends as well, that got them talking about their service much later in life. I do come from a family that is deeply committed to fairness, that is deeply committed to service to the community. And as a Jew, and as someone who is both one and two generations away from either the Holocaust or pogroms, I was very deeply aware that the life that I had was not an accident. My family was very lucky to come here, despite many odds, including laws that were trying to keep them out. But I had the life that they came to this country wanting. And I felt that was something worth fighting for. Um, I also very much wanted to serve in the intelligence community and and had the opportunity to serve as a Navy intelligence officer. And so that's that's how I ended up in the Navy. I, I don't know that many nice Jewish girls from the Upper West Side who joined the Navy, but that was my path to it.
0: Yeah. Do you think there's parts of your story that you're not gonna either leave incomplete or you're gonna, but that you'll like wait for the right time to tell all the rest of your family or your kids or anyone? I Do you think I, I people think so. like are hesitant to share because they either wait for the right time or they just don't think people will understand their point of view?
1: I'm thinking about that. I haven't told my family the full story, but that's because part of the story is classified. I would definitely say that there are parts of the story, like my mom saw Eye in the Sky and I watched on a plane and like bawled through half of it and I don't think most people have that reaction to that movie. But I saw it on a transatlantic flight and I called my mom when I got back to the States and I told her, I was like, okay, you saw that movie and I remember you told me you had a very visceral reaction to it. Okay, that movie, all of that, now you get it.
0: It is a movie about drone warfare.
1: It is a movie about drone warfare, but it's not just about drone warfare. It's about various kinds of intelligence and the fact that any kind of I mean, every operation is intelligence driven, but that every single operation has many people in the chain. You have people who are going to be thousands of miles away sitting in an office who never actually see the operation. You also have people who are on the ground who very much experience the after effects of that operation. And every single component of that chain was very familiar to me. and. I can tell you that, and I can certainly tell my family that, but it'll be a very long time before I could talk about what that actually means in real time, Yeah. right? W- where I was and what that meant. And so that's why I say, you know, there are stories that I wouldn't tell. And there are also some stories that I, I, I don't think I have anything that I would not be comfortable to tell, but pe- people are also ready to hear things in different times. And I think that generation in particular also was only comfortable sharing with each other. Like American Legion halls and VFWs were therapy for all for an entire generation of people, if not m- multiple generations of people. It was yeah. certainly not something you told your your family and definitely not something you told your kids.
0: Yeah, I refrain from talking about things just because normally I don't want to have to go through explaining something to someone like it's yeah. very selfish. But yeah. I mean, you're right. You know, I, I would imagine a lot of those people thought that the only people who could relate to them were ones with shared experience.
1: Yeah. And I still, my family has been with me for a long time, my through this whole thing. So people like my parents, while I still have to explain a lot, I have to explain less and less over time.
0: So you were a Navy intelligence officer. Yeah. You spent a big portion of time active, and then transition to reserves, you're still in reserves. Do you want to take us through? A couple episodes ago, we had on two former intelligence analysts, and uh, we talked about kind of like the different aspects of military intelligence. One was a human intelligence collector, and the other was was an all-source intelligence analyst. So could you give us some insight into the path that you took when you chose Navy Intel?
1: Sure. So first of all, the, the, the Navy is unique from other branches in that if you come in through Officer Candidate School, you enter Officer Candidate School knowing you're going to be an intel officer. I'm not aware of how the Air Force does it, but the Army and the Marine Corps, you're already in, you already are going to, com- you're already in OCS, and then you'll find out what you're going to do later. The Navy, you come in with a contract for your branch. So I knew from the very beginning I was going to be an intelligence officer. And all intelligence officers are generalists. We, we say, like, our core competency is operational intelligence. Do you have the opportunity to specialize? Yes. But in general, your core competency, and there are special programs that also allow you to specialize even further or spend more time in a specialty. But even then, you're still evaluated on, can you be a big Navy intel officer? And one of the reasons I even came into the Navy is very much based on gender, because in 2009, ground combat positions were still closed to women. and that not only closed particular positions to women it severely impacted the culture and both specifically in the army and the marine corps i don't know why the air force was never something that i was interested in but it really left the navy for me and a marine actually told me he's like i really really think you should look at the navy the navy has pretty much all jobs open to women at that point submarines were still closed to women but we knew they were opening soon SEALs were closed to women, but women had already been with the SEAL teams serving on all the same missions for a couple of years by that point. Also coming in as an intel officer, in addition to the fact that that's what I wanted to do in the Navy, that also meant that I had the, the opportunity to serve with aviation or ships or SEALs or explosive ordnance disposal or on a big watch floor in Germany or England. And so it also opened the most opportunities with the most promotion opportunities, and I would probably live on a beach, which I did. So I came in in 2009, I commissioned in 2010. I was stashed in New York City for six weeks, which is significant because I was in New York City for Fleet Week, which was awesome. And then I went to Virginia Beach for training. And from there I went to San Diego and I was assigned to Amphibious Squadron 3, which is responsible for three amphibious ships. So uh, the ships that conduct amphibious landings, we land Marines, we have landing craft, those kinds of landing craft that you think of uh, landing on the beach in Normandy, we can launch those. But of course, any ship has a multitude of capabilities that the eye cannot see. So I spent two years there, I left, for two months in 2011 to go to Japan. In the spring of 2011, there was an absolutely catastrophic um, earthquake and tsunami, which also caused a nuclear disaster and they needed watch officers. I came back and I I, I met my mentor that summer and got to know some other people in the community. And, And within a couple of months, word of mouth from Naval Special Warfare found their way to me and they were looking for a junior officer who spoke foreign languages and had interest in human intel. I screened and I passed, and that ended up being the next three years of my life.
2: What so, languages?
1: I'm fluent in French and I speak bad Hindi. Then I can read oh, it. Yeah. like do, I, how did I'm, you learn Hindi? So I lived in India for a couple of months when I was in college, okay. and I have a really good ear. It was like that when I was you know, doing music growing up, and it's, I've always been like that with language. So I can learn languages very well by ear. And Hindi's construction in the way that it actually is conversationally, I would not be able to write it well. But there's a lot of English m- mixed in. So if you learn enough Hindi and you speak English, you can get through a conversation in Hindi pretty well.
0: Oh, nice.
1: So I don't really, I can understand some of it now. But around when I was coming into the Navy, my Hindi was pretty good. But then and as now, I'm fluent in French. And so I did the screening. I passed. I went on deployment with the USS Palalu and left halfway through to go to training. Came out of training and then immediately was thrown into a workup cycle and then deployed with my unit to the Arabian Peninsula from 2013 to 2014. Came back and within a couple of months, I I became the troop commander for uh, the analysis and targeting branch. I was the intel officer for the whole command. I was responsible for 61 people deployed to seven different countries. We sent people back into Iraq. Yeah, I had people around the world and I would come into work and I would be looking at beheading videos and talking with people who were deployed and making sure that they had what they needed and making adjustments as required. And in the afternoon, I was talking to our folks who were in in the Pacific. And I, I already knew, I mean, I, I was very clear. I knew when I came back from deployment in 2014 that I didn't want to stay in the Navy on active duty for a full 20 years. And that actually had nothing to do with the deployment. It had been something that I'd been thinking about for a long time. I just, I had so many things that I was passionate about that was that were not the Navy and I started writing and publishing while I was in, while I was deployed under a pseudonym and I, and, and I realized I loved it and other people liked what I was writing. I was out with some, some teammates and someone said something, this is when I was deployed, that once you get to, you know, the, the seven year mark or so, if you know you're not going to stay in for 20 years, it's, it's better to leave sooner rather than later. And I knew I wasn't going to stay, and, and that meant a lot to me. So at that point, I knew I had to start thinking about my exit. Why did uh, that
0: person think seven years, and do you think that was an accurate appraisal?
1: Looking backwards, it is an accurate appraisal. I think five years is too soon for a lot of people. It, it really depends on what you want to be, be valued for and what you want to get out of your service. If you're in that seven to 12-year mark, I've seen a lot of people will take one step back, and then they take three steps forward, which has been my trajectory and has been the trajectory of a lot of my peers. My military service has counted. My education has counted. I live in Washington DC and the peer group that I have are also people who are ahead of most folks who are our age in government. Okay. I, I, I left active duty at six and a half years with no break in service, transitioned directly into the reserves, and uh, went and got a master's degree on the GI Bill. And so I'm still in the reserves.
2: So
0: So during that transition period, did you say, hey, I'm going to shop around for graduate programs? Did you think about just entering the job market straight up? And you were already publishing, right?
1: Yes. When I was actually on my second deployment that I went on in 2012, one of my just I'm on watch, not a lot is going on activities because I had an Excel spreadsheet at that point of the different graduate schools that I was interested in, what the actual degree they granted was, what the tuition was. Of course, they all accepted the GI Bill, but if they provided yellow ribbon, like what I might have to potentially go in debt for, what their GRE range was, what any pre- prerequisites were. I did not take econ in grad school which or in college, which meant I could not go to Stanford, stuff like that. And then there was another tab that had Scholarships. And so I had had that. I, I got that was 2012. I got out in 2016. I did sign up for an ambassador and support through Service to School, which oh, I to Oh, so you, gonna...
0: you went through Service to School I before? I went through Service
1: to School before oh, okay. three years later I, I ran the organization for a year. So that's how I found Service to School is that I was a beneficiary of their services. Service to School is a, a nonprofit that helps veterans reach their next chapter of service by connecting them with higher education. So it's it's your big brother, it's your high school guidance counselor, it's your best friend who will walk you through the application process for whatever higher education program you are applying for, particularly for undergraduate. But they do have a graduate program, which is how I had support in applying to grad school and also was encouraged to apply for the Pat Tillman Scholarship. And I am a Tillman Scholar. So I at least had this plan a couple of years out. And I am not only bad at math, I am math phobic. And so while I, I developed much better study skills and I feel like I became a much better student while I was in the Navy, nothing I experienced in the Navy terrified me like, like sitting down to take a math test. Just, it, I was, you know, 16 years old and absolutely terrified again. And so I knew I also needed a long time to study for and get the GRE score that I wanted. So yeah. I played a very, very long game in applying to graduate school. Now, I was already writing, and, and the important thing, and this is the other thing that I also tell people, do not leave the military to get out of the military. If you are leaving the military, you should be going towards something. And okay. the most successful transitions I see from people are people who are actively excited and, uh, about what they are going towards. I was excited to go to grad school and just be a student and write more. I started writing and publishing while I was deployed in 2014 and kept publishing. And I was writing under a pseudonym while I was on active duty, but the more I did it, the everyone who, was, who actually knew me knew it was me. And I loved doing that. I also saw that it meant a lot to other people and somewhere along the way, all of a sudden, these personal essays started being like having policy implications. Mm-hmm. And so those two things put together put me on a path to where I ended up. So um, what were
0: you writing about? You said they were a bit personal, but yes. um, yeah, what so were you focused
1: on? I, I started by writing about what it felt like for me to be deployed and what service meant to me and just what it felt like to be like me just going through my day to day. But it became impossible to not write about gender discrimination. It became impossible to not write about policies that were dumb like women's uniforms cost more than men's uniforms it's dumb like there's no good reason for it and if anyone gives you a good reason for it they're gaslighting because the services spend so much money on it that they have the ability to subsidize it so your uniform should not cost more
0: i always Um, wanted i always wondered if someone who is smaller had to pay less for clothes
1: uh someone who's smaller than you actually has to pay more Really? Yeah. Women's uniforms cost more than men's uniforms. So enlisted, I'll get a stipend. Enlisted do not have to pay for uniforms. Officers do. Hmm. So yes. I so, was just talking
0: about physically smaller is kind of a joke.
1: Yes, no, but like they, those uniforms <laughs> do actually cost at the uniform shop, those uniforms cost more.
2: <laughs> okay. Unless they're a gender a,
1: neutral uniform. But like the women's so, specific uniforms item cost more. Anyway, it's dumb. Or the draft. I thought I think that I personally think that if you are a citizen of this country, if you are between eighteen and twenty four, you should be required to register for selective service. Because It's it's only
0: men that are?
1: Correct. Currently right now, you cannot even voluntarily sign up for selective service if you are a woman. Now the National Commission on Military and Public Service, and I think I'm missing some of it, but there was a National Commission that looked at this and they recommended that women register for the draft but they also looked at other kinds of service and made recommendations on different kinds of ways of recalling people with special skills for emergent missions. But yeah, there were these things with policy implications and then all of a sudden I was like, wait, am I I writing an op-ed now about uniform costs and the draft? And my first, viral article I had some articles that you know, were, were very well read. My first article, viral article, came out in April of two thousand fifteen. It's called Four Reasons I'm Resigning My Commission as a Navy Officer. and I lived in San Diego, so it was posted at eight a m New York time, and so by the time I woke up at six a m in San Diego, it had already exploded. and I didn't say anything in the article that I hadn't heard every junior officer complain about over lunch. So I really thought that this was gonna be like the least exciting article that I ever wrote and it turned out to be the first one that millions of people read. And I still get emails about it and it's been five and a half years. And in it, I talked about how, you know, how the military does require to suppress Parts of yourself in ways that I don't think are operationally necessary, and that there are people who are advanced in rank because they checked the boxes, not because they're good officers. And there also was some of it where it was purely just me. I, and I go back and I look at that article, and, and, and I still a lot, I st- I still stand by a lot. Of, I would write it differently if I were to write it now, but. The message would absolutely still be the same.
0: So, did you like you say that by this time, the people who knew you personally knew who, who, you, who you were writing under, right? So, that, it was well,
1: actually after that, it was after oh, it was that after, that people okay. started to figure it out because there was someone there were people, there was, there was actually a colleague who worked with me who was like, You need to see this article by Anna Granville, it sounds like she really resonates with you. Know, what she wrote would really resonate with you. And I just had to turn to him and be like, it's me.
0: So what kind of feedback did you get from that?
1: Um, either either
0: pseudonymized or personally?
1: So or do you still
0: get feedback?
1: I still get feedback. And I would say, I, I'm going to give you the, how I, how I remember it is actually different from what it was. Around that time, they tell you, don't read the comments. I do read the comments because some people are actually very threatening in the comments and I have actually had my family threatened in comments. So if I see that, I need to know about it. But I was also just very interested in what people who people were thinking and feeling. And, 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 and even to this day, I have my army of hate readers. And again, I say, thanks. Th- thank you. Thank you for your, your time. Thank you for reading. Thank you for the click.
0: You have 9000 Twitter followers. Too. I
1: know. How'd that happen? Now, now I do. That was all after I left. I didn't. I was not on Twitter at that point yet, and I have no okay. idea. I don't know why those people are following—those people. Thank you for following me on Twitter. I don't know why. I'm a real person, and thank you for, my, for following my hot takes. But at that point, I was not on Twitter. I, I have yet to write something that has been universally responded to in a negative manner. I had one person who responded to that article who really disagreed with it and reached out to me because he wanted to write a rebuttal. And that person is now one of my closest friends. He reached out to me and he wanted to write an article called Four Reasons Why You Should Not Resign Your Commission as a Naval Officer, and then lo and behold, we both did. There are always going to be some people who disagree with what you're saying for good reasons. There are also gonna be some people who disagree with what you're saying because it makes them uncomfortable and requires them to question fundamental assumptions about themselves and their life decisions. Most of the negative responses I got were highly gendered because if you're a woman with an opinion, you're whining and your opinions are invalid. That was the tone of it. A lot of people thought that I'd had bad leadership and those were actually some conversations that I had with folks who read the articles later. And I actually had very good leadership for most of my career. I did have some bad leaders that I either worked for or observed.
0: Your topic of discussion is oftentimes gender, gender yes. equality. You're very open about being, you know, this being very important to you. You're also yes. very open about your Jewish heritage as well and that connection with the military. When this started becoming more and more important to you, when you started writing everything, did this guide your path through your grad program to your post-grad career?
1: Yes, it did. But again, it's not, not in a straight line. Like, we, if there's any theme, like none of this has been a straight line, right? Right. I did not start writing about these issues that pertain to gender. It came out slowly. And, and you're, when you asked me about how that, you know, the, the four reasons I'm resigning myself resigning as a, my commission as a naval officer, how was that received? Before I wrote that, I realized that the people that my articles most resonated with were other women. Whether I was explicitly talking about gender or not, that was who was resharing the article, not knowing that it was Andrea Goldstein who wrote it. Mm-hmm. That was who was commenting that was who had felt that no one had was expressing how they felt about service and what service meant to them and a lot of it was really positive i would also say that i didn't come into the military intending to you know carry the carry the water for gender equality i certainly didn't come into the naval special warfare community and the other soft communities that i served with with that intention, it happened because I saw men just be able to do their job. And I had to deal with absolutely mission-harming bullshit because colleagues felt threatened by the fact that I existed and was competent. And I did not want anyone who followed me to have to deal with that. I wanted them just to be able to come in and do their job. Hmm. I didn't intend to be a pioneer, I I didn't, didn't, well, I was the first woman to do, to do my job. I didn't know that until I already had the job. It was not something that I set out to do, but I, it was something that I had to accept was that dealing with the the like dealing with the bullshit was part of the job and, and I had to eliminate that. And so I, I wrote about that. And, and, and that did guide me to grad school. Now I will say that my degree in history focused on women who disguise themselves as men to fight in the Civil War. So I did know that when everyone told me that women could not do a particular thing or had never done a particular thing that it was absolutely a lie because there were multiple women who not only had done it but had received pensions from congress for doing such jobs and some of their names are margaret corbin and deborah sampson and harriet tubman and sarah edma edmonds and dr mary walker and all of these names that I have mentioned, two of them served in the in the American Revolution and three of them served in the American Civil War.
0: Was Mary um, Walker a Medal of Honor recipient?
1: She's the only female Medal of Honor recipient. And when President Abraham Lincoln said in his 1865 inaugural address to care for him who has borne the battle and his widow and his orphan... Dr. Mary Walker had already spent four months in a Confederate prisoner of war camp. And, and Harriet Tubman had already led troops in combat, which she did in 1863. So that was the foundation that I had at least to arm myself for when I was like in these environments and, and, and hearing these comments. It had been something that I had studied because I liked it and I thought it was interesting. And after having had these experiences in the Navy, I actually have in my notebook a, a copy of an unclassified email that I, ha- that I kept that I had to write because there was a, a team that was denying an incredibly exceptional female technician from doing her job because they claimed that they couldn't accommodate women on their base. And it's like, okay, I don't, I don't know what you mean by that. And it was, it was, I uh, was like, "Come on, you guys are adult men. Like, do you think like women have cooties or something?" And the email is, it's much more professional than that. But I keep it with me to remind me of that time. And and it took that situation never should have arisen to my level. And other people did not fight for her and did not fight for this sailor's exceptionalism and her ability to do her job that ultimately saved lives. I also wanted to understand, like, why does that resistance exist? Why why are they so resistant to having this sailor who has a capability that they don't have that can sail- save their lives? And and ultimately, what the email says is, like, are you really willing to put your, your, your seals at risk because you don't want a woman on your farm? Is that really what you want? And ultimately, they were like, oh, well, that's kind of a good point. So there was that. There was the fact that 2 million, there are two million women veterans living right now in the United States alive. That, that doesn't include the hundreds of thousands of women who are no longer alive who have already worn the uniform in this country. And that doesn't incorporate the women who served in jobs that are now militarized that were, you know, like contract nurses and, and spies and, and various logistical and nurses, and various ni- n- logistical jobs that are now part of the military that used to just be considered camp followers, uh, v- yet women are also even underrepresented based on their proportion in, in the veteran population, in veteran-serving groups. Was it is an American Legion that's in the New York Athletic Club? Yeah. I've gone there three or four times, and most of the times I've been there, they're like 20 or 30 people, and I'm the only woman. And based off of proportion the population, there should be at least three women. And based on generation, there should be six or seven women. Because women women are are ten percent of the veteran population overall, and in the post nine eleven population, we're between seventeen and twenty percent. And the Marine Corps always skews our numbers.
0: <laughs> we had a we had a uh, female Marine officer on a couple episodes ago, but she said that uh, yeah, they were. Seven percent or something like that?
1: Yeah, it, it's between yeah. seven and eight. It's between seven or eight percent. Like they're fighting to get to ten. Hey
0: everybody, for months you've heard me talk about two of my favorite nonprofit organizations, the Coast to Coast Foundation and Small Steps in Speech. We chose these because I have a personal connection with their principal honorees, Ryan and Mark. We appreciate your support and engagement so far, and we're gonna continue to keep you updated. We're also going to start promoting other nonprofits as well. I'm gonna start off by talking about Service to School since we talked about it during the episode. Service to School is an organization that provides free college and grad school application counseling to military veterans and service members. In addition to its great library of resources, Service to School also provides applicants with other veteran ambassadors to guide them directly through the process. You'll hear Andrea talk about how she engaged service to school while applying to grad school before she later was asked to run the organization as its CEO. Well, that's about when I signed up to be an ambassador myself with the hopes of getting more vets access to the kinds of schools I was fortunate to get into. Whether you're a service member or veteran looking to sign up, or you'd like to donate or you're just interested, go visit them at servicetoschool.org. That serves with a two, service, the number two, school.org. Thanks, and let's get back to the show. How do female veterans connect? Like I'm just asking kind of openly, what kind of things do you connect over, or how do your interactions typically go?
1: I went to a program for international relations, and yet I ended up studying women veteran identity in the U.S. So I looked at a very domestic policy-focused topic at an international policy school. I looked at you know, feminist theory and feminist theory in international relations, which also included looking at women who served in non-state-armed groups like the FARC in Colombia or Maoists in Tibet and various non-state-armed groups in sub-Saharan Africa and also looking at demobilization. And, and there was actually a lot of very... Very similar stories. Oh, it was Nepal, Was that's where the Maoists were. Of this incredible freedom, and yet still being subject to rules that men set. And then when they left, being completely erased, having their experience completely erased. Like, when you are actively serving, I have had this experience and it is so common. I have been in uniform at a military treatment facility and be asked for my sponsor's social security number.
0: Sponsor meaning the Sponsor meaning actual like, service member? Yes, who's the real service member? wife. Yeah.
1: Correct. I was like, yeah. I this is a podcast. So no one, no one can see me gesturing and looking at myself, but I would do that. And, and, and I've, sometimes I've just been like, my social is blah, 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 blah. And there have been some times where I actually do get smart and be like, I am standing in front of you in uniform. Are you serious? I, I give a little bit of leeway for it when I'm on the phone, but even, even so it's like, you either ask everybody who their sponsor social is, but they don't, yeah. it's a, it's a thing that women get asked. And, and or is that what a being,
0: microaggression is?
1: It is. That's exactly what a microaggression is. That is the okay. definition of it. At, or that is a great example of it. Or my neighbors who are like, oh, you're in the Navy? Well, I guess they don't send you in harm's way, do you? Again, I live in Washington, D.C. There's military everywhere. There's, there are two memorials to military women here. One that's across from the Vietnam Memorial and one that's the entrance to Arlington National Cemetery. And and still, like, in my current job, my title has the words women veteran in it. I wear a lanyard that says Navy, and I wear either a U.S. Navy pin or my warfare qualification, and people ask me what my connection to the military is. Like, come on. I, I am in it. So... But those kinds of things happen every single day and it's exhausting and it's undermining one of the most important things that you do. And 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 if we serve in the military, what we do is who we are. And so to effectively be told, who you are is not who you are and I don't believe you. Especially when serving is is traumatic for everybody, but it is particularly traumatic for women. If you don't experience some kind of sexual trauma, you know the threat is always there. A lot of women are just exhausted and are ready to move on. So that that was something that that I found. And and then it it came to, so how do women veterans find each other? In a lot of places, it's by accident. There are now a lot more groups set up. So I found women veterans by being actively involved in the veteran space. And if I had not become a Tillman scholar, and I had not had the great fortune of being selected for that program, we would not be having this conversation. I would probably not be identifying as a veteran. I would probably not have any of this to say. Because I I did not want to have anything to do with the veteran community. I was so exhausted, I was so frustrated I was burnt out, and and then I was kind of just done with the military. And then I had to go to Chicago with 120 other Tillman scholars, and like half of them were women. And not only were so many of them women, a lot of them had had very similar experiences to me, where they were the one or one of two women in a highly selective unit. So not only was I around a lot of other veterans like me, I was around a lot of other women veterans like me, and that kept me engaged in the veteran community, and then I started to find that there were these spaces. A lot of us find each other through advocacy organizations and getting involved in some kind of movement. Higher education is a really big one. Women veterans are overrepresented in higher education, but but I wanna focus on these spaces where there are more women veterans, because even in higher education, a lot of the veterans groups still end up being male dominated, even if women are leading the veterans group. A lot of women veterans meet each other in military sexual trauma survivor groups. Really? Um, yes.
0: Can you shed some light on how prevalent that actually is?
1: Military sexual trauma is a specific term that is defined in Title 38, which is the, the part of the US code which governs veter- veterans benefits. and it comprises sexual assault, sexual abuse, and sexual harassment. Approximately one in four women experience sexual assault while serving. In the veteran community, it's one in 100 men, but within the military, the numbers have differed over the years, and part of that is is related to hazing, but we're talking about women veterans, so it's about one in four women. Now, when it comes to the sexual harassment numbers, the numbers get a lot higher, and it's a lot harder to tell because a lot of women will say no because sexual harassment has historically and remains so prevalent that a lot of service members can no longer distinguish it. There's one particular incident that I didn't even think about until this year. I had completely forgotten about it for eight years. I was in timor last, and I was deployed on the Peleliu and we were getting ready to get back on a landing craft unit to go back to the ship and a gunny comes up to me and is like, hey, ma'am, I need to show you something. And he shows me some pictures, and it's pictures that someone has taken of my rear end. And there's like some junior Marine next to him. And he's like, ma'am, do you think those are appropriate? And I was just an absolute shock. And I was like, absolutely not. And so he stands there and he deletes the photos right in front of me. If it were me now, I would ask to hold on to the camera and the memory card and, and have there be like some kind of judicial proceedings because that is incredibly abusive behavior. I had forgotten about that for eight years. It was something that happened and it was dealt with and I put it out of my mind and, and kudos to that gunny because he saw it happen, it happened on the spot, he addressed it on the spot, he actually not only made sure that that Marine had to look me in the eye, but that all of the Marines around him saw it. And that, that, was, that was very effective. But the fact that I forgot about that is indicative of being in a culture where something like that is normalized. But sexual harassment is ubiquitous, and the threat of it escalating to sexual assault is also ubiquitous. And a, a, a lot of women find each other because... And, and there have been a lot of women who have been very, very... Not only harmed by being sexually assaulted by someone who they work with and basically live with. and are supposed to put their lives in that person's hand and that person then harms them, but then also actively harmed by their commands. And and so there is absolutely a reprehensible undercurrent of rape culture in the military. And it is the number one thing that I hear about from women veterans. I, I don't hear a lot about it from active duty service women, but it, I, I've spoken to women like while they're serving and then talk to them a year later and it goes from being something they didn't even think about to something that they think about all the time because when you're serving, you just have to survive. And there are a lot of women who, who don't want to talk about sexual assault and they don't want to talk about these things and these groups are, are not like vent sessions. But at the end of the day, we all loved serving. I have yet to meet someone who didn't love what they did. There are a lot of women who I've met who had careers cut short because of some kind of harm done to them by people they served with. And then even those of us who got to do, like I got to serve on my own terms and I got to leave on my own terms, but that frustration about obstacles being there that shouldn't have been there because of my gender and wondering, well, what would it have been like? And this profound love for this organization that will not love us back is, is absolutely something that has brought us a lot of us together.
2: Over time, have you seen, is there any progress happening on that front?
1: We can talk about, there's, you know, there's legislative progress, There, there's progress that has been made by the individual branches in policy. There's also cultural progress. And I will say, the Navy is a much better place to serve as a woman officer than it was when I came in. I think if you're an enlisted service member, I think there's a ways to go. I think things have not improved for our sailors, and that, I, I think there's work to be done. And that also has to do, something that has to do with, you know, where resources have been put in addressing leadership changes. I joined in 2009. There are programs and policies in place that didn't exist in 2009 that exist now. To to at least be knowledgeable about what resources and the programs exist, that's a that's a big thing. And I actually see that now like having worked on policies and statutes is that Congress can do one thing, but if the Executive branch doesn't actually train people on it. It it is worthless. Like there are actually a lot of resources that are available that people don't know about because, like the Department of Defense hasn't trained people about it.
0: So, in your kind of dual position as a as a uh, officer in the Navy Reserves and working with the House of Representatives, I know that you are an advisor to NATO, and you're also a. Senior policy advisor in the House. Can you tell um, us how you balance those things, and you know where you're where you're pushing, where you're making progress?
1: Yeah. So I'm not with NATO anymore. I transferred in April. I'm back in the intel world. But how do I balance both of those? I mean, it took me a while to figure out how to get the jobs to be kind of complementary, and, and eventually, I just had to accept the challenges. But. My civilian job is grateful for the fact that I have, I mean, both are are grateful for the fact that I have a foot in both worlds because to understand the legislative process is like learning a dark art. The legislative process is necessarily complex and informs your job. If you're a service member, like active duty reserve guard, if you are a service member, it informs so much more of your job than you know. Like you might know about government shutdowns and continuing resolutions in the fiscal years, but there's so much more. For example, a lot of service members don't follow the National Defense Authorization Act. And, and why, why would you? But there's right. so much in there that affects your life. Service members do have nonprofit organizations looking out for them, kind of like the American Legion, there's Military Officers Association of America and, and the Retired Enlisted Association but they're not quite like the VSOs. And we really need to be our own best advocates. But because we don't follow the NDAA closely, like we don't think to, like no one tells us to do it. No one explains the legislative process to us. Like again, the legislative process is a dark art. And so to be like on the reserve side, there's reservists don't get parental leave. This is just just one example. Reservists do not get parental leave, active duty does. Reservists don't. People are like, oh, well, reservists can move your drills around. I'm like, no, that's your paid time. And you don't know what's gonna happen later in the year. And if reservists, and, and it should be same pay, same benefits. So if active duty gets 12 weeks away paid, why doesn't the reserve get 12 weeks away? That's three months of drill, right? So there were amendments that were introduced both in the House and Senate versions of the National Defense Authorization Act that would address that issue. But that was this year. And that issue has been an issue for several years. It, it really took, I won't give the whole story, but there were definitely some, both staff members and members of Congress who were in the Reserve and Guard who, need, who, who made that happen. And so if do you, you think
0: were, it, it happens if there weren't The services members? were not
1: gonna, I do not think. I think it would have happened without serving members. I think you would need to have either- because there are also members who are from military families or come from military communities. I don't think it's a prerequisite to be, and this is not actually a pr- perspective of mine that has changed since I got out. I don't think you need to have served to deeply care about the military and veterans community and to have really effective policy ideas. In fact, sometimes being close to but not part of that community can give you a perspective that is very helpful. And by the way, that policy, among many, did not require an act of Congress. The services could have done it themselves, they just didn't. I'll just quote what someone in my war college class said, and I don't fully agree with it, but it's not an inaccurate perception, which is, he said, Congress only governs for six months. A third of the Senate and 100% of the House of Representatives is up for election every two years. And of those individuals, you're going to have some who are very vulnerable. Like some of them are in safe seats. But some of them are going to be fighting every time or at least that time. So voting on something that's controversial, even if it's right, is going to be hard. And that can be a lot to swallow if you are someone who's serving in the military where like you, your job is not vulnerable. You have a lot of job security.
0: So how do you actually get, I think we made a... I may have taken us right over this, but how do you actually get this type of position and then where do you go from being a policy advisor?
1: There are a couple of different roads to the Hill and they're also gonna depend on where you're at in your career, what kind of pay cut you're willing to take. So people come in, first of all, veterans have a special kind of way in. You, you can do a Wounded Warrior Fellowship, You can go and come in through a program called Hill Vets, which places you as a a fellow in a member or senator's office. Because the best way to get a job on the Hill is is to have had a job on the Hill. So that is, for for most people, the best way to come into the Hill is to come in through, so some people are going to come into an entry-level position, which would be either a scheduler or a staff assistant. For most veterans, you are already way too senior for that you're probably gonna have to take a step step back to move forward. The reason I say that is because you're gonna probably, if you're an officer, you're gonna be probably coming in in your early 30s into a job that people in their mid to late 20s also have because they came in as an intern in college and then were a staff assistant or a scheduler and then a legislative correspondent and then a legislative assistant. And I know I'm giving you titles that don't make a lot of sense, but i at least hope i gave you a sense of where they are in the food chain by that order that i spoke the, the, effectively the good jobs are either you know your your legislative directors or your senior policy advisors those exist more for members like on the senate side there's a bigger diversity of jobs on the senate side in the senators offices and there are in member offices but in general the good jobs are on committees uh, my job was the absolute mythical unicorn of there was a very specific skill set they looked for so that they were willing to do a nationwide search, not on the Hill. I knew nobody who worked on the Hill, so I didn't have anyone putting in a good word for me. I had no Hill experience. I'd worked on policy. I'd worked for members in the district in an advisory committee, like voluntarily, but I had never worked in DC. Those jobs do exist. Like, I'd written and published on the topic. My master's degree was focused on the topic. People knew who I was. I I had somewhat of a public reputation. I had just enough understanding of policy that they were like, yeah, we can teach you the rest. But that's also not the first time that that mythical unicorn job exists. But that's not most people. If you want to come to the Hill, and this is most people, this is veterans, this is not veterans, because I also share this with, like, a lot of my grad school classmates who... You know, they went to the Peace Corps first, and then, they went, and then they went to grad school, and now they're doing something else. Coming to the Hill with no Hill experience is hard. The fact that there are reforms required to address that issue is widely acknowledged, but we're talking about people who are looking for a job right now, right? Or in the next six to 12 months. Congress also works in cycles, so you're gonna see your, the, the biggest volume of job openings between November and February. So that basically between the election and at the beginning of the new Congress.
0: So it's, it's seasonal and it's highly referral-based.
1: Extremely. And this is why coming in through an avenue like Hill Vets mm-hmm. is incredibly beneficial to veterans. That is just one avenue. If you're a woman, if you're a person of color, there are a lot of other avenues in but for those who are military-connected, Hill Vets is one of the skills that we have through, from our service that really sets us apart is the ability to adapt and become skilled in a field that we knew nothing about a week ago yeah. because you're thrown in the fire and you need to learn it to survive.
0: Hi, everyone. Here's a point in the show where we would like to thank all of our listeners for your great support. We've had a number of people get in touch since launching this thing, and we're really happy you're enjoying it. This has given us the chance to meet a lot of new people, as well as reconnect with some old friends. If you've been with us for a few episodes, please feel free to share with some other people. We're growing slowly but steadily, and we're going to keep doing this as long as you keep listening. You can always engage with us on Twitter or Instagram at thank what or by visiting our website at ThankYouNowWhat.com. Or you can even email us directly at thankyounowwhat@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Ben and I both read each email, and we really appreciate the engagement. If you really like what we're doing here and you would like to share the cost of doing business with us, there are a couple options. You can give a one-time donation via the PayPal link on our website, or you can also go to our Patreon site. Uh, that's patreon.com thankyounowwhat. Our Patreon page is a few tiers. The lowest tier is $1 per episode. We are working on some extra bonus content and other perks for all of our tiers and we're gonna keep you updated. Right now we're running purely on altruism. So huge thanks to everyone who's used both PayPal and Patreon. Uh, Every donation means a ton to us. As always, Please know that Ben and I are volunteering our time and effort and that all net proceeds from this podcast are going to be redirected to nonprofits that support veterans right after we cover basic expenses like hosting, software, and equipment. You can also always choose to give directly to nonprofits we feature, which we appreciate as well. Thanks. Let's get back to the episode. We had uh, Jim Matheson on last episode, too. He talked about post-partisanship and that military veterans are, like, predisposed to, you know, not being constrained by party politics. Do you have that kind of opinion?
1: I don't agree with that. It has not held up. And I would definitely say it's held up more in the House, but has definitely not held up in the Senate. Like, not even close. And there are certainly some House members who are veterans who are hyper-partisan. I certainly think there have been some issues that members have been able to work on across parties. There absolutely have, because they've been common sense. And in that same breath, there have also been non-veterans who have found agreement on certain things. I wish I could tell you that I think that our service transcends everything and we can absolutely find you know, ways to be postpartisan because we went through this incredibly transformative and sometimes traumatic thing in our youth. But I just have not, when I think about like the, the entirety of politics, when I think about every member who's worn the uniform and every senator who's worn the uniform, it does not hold up. Mm. Okay. I would also say the House and Senate are very different when it comes to this. Again, this is my personal opinion. I think the tone in the House has made it a lot easier to be collaborative on things that just make sense when it comes to the military and when it comes to veterans. I'm not sure that holds up in the Senate. Like, I I couldn't go to someone who says like, oh, so you believed in paid family leave for the military, but what about paid family leave for everyone else? Right, like okay. I do not see, I like I personally don't see the difference. I think everyone has a right to paid family leave, and and you could say like, well, it's, it's a post partisan. You could say th- there's collaboration when it comes to military and veterans issues, but I do not see it once you take the national security apparatus out of the picture.
0: Okay, so what? Oh, I mean, that's why we have people on because everyone has different <laughs> different takes on it.
1: I, I, I would part? say one thing though. I, I will yeah. say one thing on that note though. Yeah. Being a reservist and also being in the military puts me in environments where I can meet people in low stakes environments who, I, who do not have the same point of view, who I would not meet otherwise. And I will okay. give that one. Con- I will give that concession. So I'm. G- I've given you a, a more pessimistic view than Jim. I will it's give not that. It's a pessimistic
0: way. view. Yeah. It's just what you see.
1: Yeah, it's, it's like that. That is that is what I see. But I will say. I didn't want to I,
0: come I, off as it being pessimistic.
1: Yeah, I. I will say like because of that. Like I do have, you know, in my war college class, in my reserve unit, in my community in the reserves, and just like folks that I've served with or people who I have connected with in different environments because of service, I definitely have come across people who have different political views, more so than if I had no service at all. And I will give that.
0: Okay. What's the next step for you? Are you going to stay in government?
1: That's a plan. I have yeah. no plans to leave government. I, I really love my job. And, and, who, and who's to know what other avenues will open? I found out about my job because I was sitting in the Rayburn House office building waiting for a friend to go grab drinks at Tortilla Coast and like scrolling through my email and this job popped up and I ignored it because I thought I was going on orders and then eight people forwarded it to me and it was a job I could not have imagined would have existed. So who's to know? You could not get me to leave government right now. You could not pay me enough money to leave government right now. I love what I do. I write laws. I write laws, (laughs) like it's really cool.
0: How long do you do that before taking on more responsibility or like what's your career trajectory for someone doing that? Like I know nothing about this, right? So you're you're a policy advisor, you help people create laws as part of a committee. Do you do that for a long time? Do you move on to something else or how
1: Um, does that go? a lot of committee staff will stay for you know five years or so. Some will stay longer, depending on if they advance. And again, like some pay, some committees do pay more than others. Um, committee staff does tend to stick around for longer than personal office staff. I don't know if anyone can hear the helicopter, but that is the vice president because I live on the flight path to the naval observatory. So for my particular job, it would be to stay on the committee for a couple of years, maybe go to another committee. It's not uncommon to move over to the executive branch. It's not uncommon to move either to a senior advisor position for a senator or to a relevant committee. So for someone like me, that could be Veterans Affairs, Armed Services, Intel. If you're in Intel, don't roll out Homeland Security because they might also be of interest, or if you're a lawyer, like there's judiciary, and 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 different committees also are looking for or members are looking for lawyers. So if you're a JAG, there are a lot of opportunities. But that that is a typical career path is like you'll weave in between the two and and go to the executive branch, and that's just staying in government. There is a very big revolving door with lobbying, or government affairs, or going into government consulting, and that's. That's great, and I think of that, you know maybe I'll end up there. A lot of people make that choice. It's just it's a different lifestyle and pay is important. Raising yeah. your family is important. If you need to pay a mortgage, that's important. If you wanna to go to a job that'll pay for medical care that, the fe- that federal insurance will not cover. I think this is very important to talk about because I've heard it from multiple people. The federal health insurance, FEHB, which is the federal insurance plan that covers federal employees, does not cover IVF, which is really fucking expensive. And, and also, childcare is expensive. So you, yeah. it, there are a lot of folks who leave government and particularly leave the executive branch because they want to start families and starting a family is hard and starting a family is expensive and raising a family is expensive.
0: Hmm. That's a sad trade-off. Yeah. I wanted to end off with asking two existential questions. We have one that we ask everyone, but I wanted to ask you another one. Can you describe what a successful steady state is when it comes to gender diversity? Sorry, gender equality or inclusion? I don't want to use the wrong term. Yeah.
1: I mean, if we're talking about gender diversity, we're talking about 51%. That's the proportion of the population.
0: Okay. So I meant equality and inclusion.
1: Yeah. I mean... The steady state should be that, we talked about this earlier, imagine what it would be like just to show up to work and do your job and love it. Imagine what it would be like to just be able to walk down the street and not have to worry if anyone's following you. This is, this is a very pri- like private example, but again, like, I think it's very important to share. Like I am single, I do not give someone my phone number until I have been out with them more than once, and I do not let someone know where I live until I have been out with them at least four or five times. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't have to think about that, right? I I, I shouldn't have to think. I th- should be able to like walk down the street with my AirPods and blasting music at two o'clock in the morning, but I can't. So, you know, we've t- I've talked about in the workplace or in higher education. But women cannot exist on the street and feel equal. I, I think that when we're thinking about what is the right steady state, I think you need to acknowledge that we can't even walk down the street safely right now. And those are perhaps some things that could be for consideration. And I would also say, like, if you are, if you are in the majority group, if you are in the dominant group, who does not have to think about those things, think about what kind of environments you are fostering by your silence. Because chances are you have certainly been in the room, even if you have not been the one who is actively creating a hostile environment for your colleagues and your friends and people that you love and care about. Have you been the one who has called out that person who is creating that hostile environment? Because what do you have to lose? The worst thing that's gonna happen is you're gonna get laughed at. The worst thing that's going to happen to me is that I'm gonna get killed because that is what happened to Vanessa Guillen.
0: I can't really follow that up. It's so like very pointed, but I think it's good for people to hear things like that. Our official podcast existential question is, who are you if you never joined the military? Who are you today?
1: If I never joined the military, I would either still be a mid-level intel analyst. I would definitely have a master's degree. I would be in debt. I would probably be an intel analyst at some agency or in consulting related to national security. I knew I was going into intel at that point, but the military was not guaranteed. And also, even if I had gone into an agency, who's to say that I would still be there? I would definitely be living in Washington, DC. The geographically, I am still where I would be. The path here would have been different.
0: I don't have a taste for washington d c but I'm glad that you enjoy it
1: I-, I will tell you it's actually a lot better when you live here.
0: I lived there when I was like eighteen maybe, uh, maybe I was too young.
1: Oh yeah, it's also gotten way cooler oh okay yeah
2: <laughs> Ben, do you have any notes? It's great. I mean the one thing i th- I think about is like you looks like in the two career paths you've had it's it's definitely been motivated from a, from your calling to service and I'm just curious from what you said earlier, you know. The cultural issues are ubiquitous and everywhere. And as a background noise within these two cultures, I was just curious if, if they're similar with what you've come up against and are the, are the changes happening or is progress being made in both places?
1: With regards to, to gender equality or inequality, the circumstances in the military actually be, became more stark when I left. And like I, my workplace is very, very healthy. My civilian workplace is very help- healthy from a gender equality perspective and I would also my current military environment is. But my current inv- military environment, while healthy, is male-dominated. My civilian workplace is 50-50 and there are a lot of women in leadership. I actually don't think we even have a gender pay gap. I, I, I genuinely enjoy coming into work and I actually work with a lot of women and the team that I happen to be on is female-dominated and it's awesome. <laughs> So Bit of a change of
0: pace from the military. It's
1: a complete change of pace. And so that that uh, uh, when when you ask like do I see changes? For me it's been more that I can see the differences because I work in these two very different environments and it's a lot easier to see what was wrong historically when I was serving because I'm now in this very different environment where I can really be my whole messy self and just like human and then just and just ways like I can just like I need a girl. And I work with people who, some of my colleagues also work on health. So that has been, I, I couldn't speak to changes on the Hill because I've, I've only been on the Hill for a year and a half. And I've also had a lot of colleagues, women colleagues who, who are veterans, who enter non-defense jobs. And that is when they really start to see, wow, that thing that I experienced in the military that I was told to minimize is like really wrong.
2: One last thing is just, you know, as... Change agent. So change agent. Like, you definitely, you seem like you see yourself and you are acting as a change agent from what you, where you came from. Is that something that you see continuing? And like, what's your path with that moving forward?
1: Um, Probably. I mean, I I, am committed to fairness. And I remember having conversations with my mom as a child about things that were not fair and a lot of it was like I played chess and hockey as a kid so I was in these environments where I was surrounded mostly by boys who teased me because I was a girl and at that at that I think if it were now people would have Adults would address that behavior because it was bullying and abusive. Back then it was like, oh, well they just like you and boys will be boys. But I thought that it was unfair. And I remember complaining to my, telling my mom, I was like, this is unfair, I'm getting teased. I'm playing this game that I love or this sport that I love and I'm getting teased because I exist in this space. And my mom would be like, well, that's just the way it is. I'm like, but it's not fair. And so that has been a theme of my life of entering these spaces because it's something that I love. And then finding out that there's resistance to the fact that I'm even there. And that's not fair. And, and and so I don't, I've never intended to be a change agent. But I don't foresee stopping because things are still deeply unfair. So I will keep trying to address things until they are fair.
2: A product of the circumstances in some ways. Correct. Now, uh, with both of you in hockey, as you bring that up, I mean, <laughs> I got to ask, The Cutting Edge, is that like a all-time favorite movie for either of you?
0: Ben, oh, he brings up the most obscure movies. Cutting Edge, seriously?
1: I haven't seen The Cutting Edge. Why didn't we talk about slapshot?
0: I used to play for a team that had the same jerseys, with the Chiefs. I still have that old jersey from that team.
1: Paul Newman's coat in that movie is...
0: They say some things in that movie. I love old comedy movies, but man, you can't uh, put that on TV anymore. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Uh,
0: Cutting edge, Ben?
2: I mean, you got the hockey player that goes to do figure skating, so it's kind of the reverse of uh, what was happening with with the hockey team.
1: We had had Slapshot, we had Mighty Ducks, we had D2, we had D3, we had Miracle, and you went to Cutting Edge. (laughs) All
0: right. Shame on you, Ben. All right. Thanks for being on with us, but it was also good to see you because I haven't seen you in a while.
1: I know. Hi.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Thanks for tuning into this episode of Thank You Now What, a podcast about life after service. Be on the lookout for Andrea fighting her relentless battle for equality. You can check out more of her writing on the Task and Purpose website, either by her real name or by searching for Anna Granville, her former pen name. There's plenty to choose from. Please support our beloved nonprofits, Coast to Coast Foundation, Small Steps in Speech, Service to School. As always, thanks for listening to us. Please subscribe, rate, review, follow, and join us next time on Thank You Now What.